Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 6,000 members worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. On this additional episode of the Dispatches podcast, I talked to amateur historian Ross Beadle about his research into the 10 command decisions he argues shaped the outcome of the initial German invasion of France in the opening months of 1914. This edition has been recorded to accompany an article written by Ross on this subject in the latest WFA bulletin, that is number 120, published in August-September 2021, for those who may be listening at a later date. This is the second episode of two. If you haven't listened to the first episode, I would recommend doing so because things get really complex. I spoke to Ross from his home in Oxfordshire. Welcome to episode two of this two-part series. I'm talking to Ross Speedle about leadership and the key decisions made by army commanders during the campaign on the Marne in August and September 1914. We're particularly looking at the commanders of the French and German armies and what they did to, the, to determine the outcome. Ross, welcome back. So can we, ref, can we review where we've got to in this very complex story? Yeah. Well, obviously, uh, listeners who decide to listen to part two straight away will uh, have to put it with a little bit of repetition, but uh, we do need to just review the story so far. We've had four of our 10 key decisions. We saw the initial German incursion through Belgium and key battles in Lorraine and around Shawa. We saw the French strategic vault fast, um, a, a complete change in strategy um, to go in, on the defensive in preparation for uh, an offensive in the future. We saw the French uh, mount a significant holding action around Guise uh, and the creation of two new armies with Foch in the centre and Manuri out on the far left. Now, after Lakato, um, the management of the German uh, army starts to get a bit fractured. Um, von Molke starts getting into these problems of control that were to bedevil the Germans. Um, as I said in the first episode, uh, the important three armies on the right, Crook, Bulow and Hausen, uh, were all under the coordinating control of Bulow. Now, Crook, in charge of the first army on the far left, on the, on the far right, on the western edge of the German army, um, in particular, didn't like the restraint that the very conservative Bulow placed on him. And he havered continually. Uh, to be freed up from uh, the control of Bulo. After Lakato, Molka granted uh, Kluck his wish and said he was free to pursue um, the goal of trying to round up the British after Lakato. Uh, Kluck uh, thought, um, and still thought so after the war, that at Lakato he defeated the whole of the British army, not just the Second Corps. Uh, so he thought he was pursuing a defeated enemy and that they would retreat southwest to the Lower Seine Valley. So freed up by von Molke, he then set off southwest um, in pursuit of where he thought the BEF was retreating to. But the BEF did not retreat southwest. 
it stuck to its mission objectives, which was to stay connected with the French, and that meant it retreated south and escaped from Kluck. Now, what that led to is something that is going to appear continually uh, throughout our story, the question of the gap between the first and second German armies. This gap opens up because the second army is heading due south, the third army alongside it is heading pretty much due south, but the first army um, on the other side is heading southwest and gradually separated from the body of the army next to it. The question of this gap you know, keeps on appearing throughout the rest of our story. Cook actually, in the course of the next few days, goes southwest and then doglegs southeast. So, so on our timeline, we've reached the 31st of August, uh, 1914. Our first podcast covered the first month of the war. And so we've reached the end of um, August. And von Kluck, or Kluck, is sharply, has sharply changed direction from southwest to southeast. So his massive army turned inwards to march east of Paris. Now, I've always thought this was a fatal mistake that he made, partly because it exploses, exposes his flank and a long one at that, you know, it's a huge amount of, of area uh, his flank covers. So it looks like the French Sixth Army outside Paris could actually attack it. And I suggest we concentrate a bit more detail on there. But, let, but firstly, could you explain to me why Cluck did what he did and why it became such a bad option? Yes, let's deal with the, the why question first. Why did he do it? He's headed out southwest of the same valley, but the problem is, by the 29th, Clock realised he was punching thin air and the BEF had got away. But he still thought that he could, if he turned inwards, he could still catch Longrezac's 5th Army, which was retreating southeast as well. He thought he could. He never actually did. This required him to change direction. Now to the second part of your question. Why was it such a bad option? And certainly history has always viewed it as a very bad option. Well, it wasn't. It was the right thing to do. Absolutely the right thing to do. It wasn't the option of turning in that was a problem. It's the way he chose to go about it that was the bad decision. This is our fifth decision. There was general agreement amongst all three of them, Moltke, Bulo, and Kluck, that Kluck should turn in. The BEF had escaped. There was no point in going, continuing southwest. But Bulo and Moltke had different reasons and would have preferred a different way of doing it. Let's start with Moltke. His goal was to defeat the French in detail, but the French army by now was retreating southeast and significantly away from Paris. The Fifth Army uh, was uh, in Chateau Thierry, that's a good 60 miles sort of east-northeast of Paris, and as far as the Germans were concerned, that was the western edge of the, of the French army. They were unaware of um, the new Sixth Army's existence. So as they saw the uh, French disappearing southeast, there was absolutely no sense at all in going southwest. Um, what Moltke was seeing, that was that the centre of gravity of the campaign, the Schwerpunkt, as they call it, um, was shifting from his right wing into his centre. What he now wanted the right wing to do not be the focus of the attack, but become a flank guard for the main fighting to be done in the centre. This is a significant shift from Schlieffen, who always emphasised the power of the right wing. 
Now, the other element to Moltke's thinking was about the whole issue of going west of Paris. And locked into the shorthand version of Schlieffen uh, is Schlieffen proposed to circumnavigate Paris from the, the west and drive the, the French up against the French Alps. And there is a, an assumption then from a first reading that it looks as though Kluck's shift is a break with the Schlieffen plan. And had he continued with the Schlieffen plan, he might have uh, succeeded. The problem is that had it going west of Paris was by far the worst of the three options that faced him. Um, he would have become completely isolated from the rest of the army. Uh, that new Sixth Army would have marched north and snipped off his supply lines. The BEF would have turned through 90, 90 degrees and would have been sitting waiting for him as exhausted he marched his way around Paris. One of the features of the German army as it marched south at this time was just how tired your, the infantry were. Uh, they were kept going largely by the thought they might get the chance to pillage Paris. Had they then had to walk all the way around the edge of Paris, by the time they'd met the BEF, they would have been a, in a pretty poor state, even though they would have outnumbered the BEF. Why did Bulow want Kluck to turn east? Quite simple. He hated the gap between him and Kluck, and he wanted it closed. Um, here's an irony. There are many ironies in this whole campaign. Uh, Bulow was a very strange choice to be the uh, senior general in that group of three armies out on the right. He was a Schlieffen sceptic. He was not obsessed with envelopment as uh, Schlieffen was. He was quite content to launch big battles of head-on engagement, which is what Schauwer had been. Uh, if you want to manage a head-on battle of engagement, you needed your armies lined up with no gaps. So the notion of Kluck uh, having this free reign with a large gap between him and, um, and Bulow was something that Bulow deeply disapproved of. Uh, the question of how the Germans chose their generals uh, is, uh, is one of those things that highlights just how bonkers uh, politics was in the Kaiser's court, but that's uh, for another day. So both Moltke and Bulow had different expectations of what they had a different expectation of what Kluck should do than Kluck did himself. Uh, Bulow and Moltke both wanted Kluck to be a flank guard against any German threat, any French threat from uh, their right. Kluck and his uh, chief of staff, uh, von Kuhl, were total Schlieffen adherents. For them, a right-wing uh, envelopment was the key part of the strategy. So they wanted to carry on with a, a fast advance, uh, whereas the two other gentlemen wanted uh, a much more conservative flank guard approach. However, this notion that the First Army was able to catch up with the French was a, a pure shimmer on, on their part. So what exactly did Cluck do? Well, by the 29th of August, he'd already pretty much got an idea that the, the British had got away. On the 30th, he had a, uh, a conversation or communication with Bulow, um, and Bulow expressed his preference for Cluck turning in. So on, on the morning of the 31st, he set out new orders for the First Army, which, to, which was to change direction by 90 degrees from going from southwest to southeast. 
He was now to follow a course towards Compiègne and Noyon, east of Paris, and their new strategic goal was no longer to catch the British, but to chase Lonzac uh, and his Fifth Army. Now, on the 31st, Moltke had also um, relocated OHL to uh, a schoolhouse in Luxembourg, uh, and he uh, see it entirely differently. Although he wanted Klug to turn in, he did not want him to pursue Lonrezac. He wanted this flank guard. And he sent orders to that effect towards the end of the 31st of August. He ordered him to mark time and pull alongside Bulow. However, Kluck exercised the independence of authority and completely ignored Molka's instruction. Uh, this is where it kind of gets visually complicated without a map to look at. Um, out on the German right is Kluck. He's got, he holds a smallish force on the northeast edge of Paris, north of Beauvais. But he sends two corps, the third and the ninth, speeding ahead southeast, almost as far as Villa Cotterets over the next few days. This stretches his army out over 50 miles from one end to the other. One of the kind of bizarre side effects of this is that because Bulo had been held up at Guise, Kluck is now a day's march ahead of um, the Second Army alongside him. As a result, those two corps, the 3rd and the 9th, are right in the direct path of the Second Army as they march south. Kluck is heading southeast while everybody else is heading south. But the second thing he did, apart from rushing so far ahead, was that he was quite inattentive to reconnaissance or flank guarding of his own forces. They had not noticed in any way, shape or form that the French were building up a force outside Paris. They bumped into it around Amiens and not realised it. Now they hadn't sent out uh, reconnaissance to see if there was anything in their vicinity. Had they realised that there was then Clark would have probably not changed direction. He would have marched straight into the French Sixth Army, ill-prepared and not fully concentrated. But they didn't. They turned inside. So before we consider the French response to Clark's dramatic change of direction, is it worth understanding how the reality of the actual campaign has affected the original strategic concept mapped out by Schlieffen in 1905? Yes, and believe it or not, do that. We have to go back to Italy over 200 years before Christ, before returning to 1914 via Berlin in 1905, and a famous film portrayal of Zululand in 1879. The Battle of Canaan was fought between Rome and Carthage uh, in 216 BC. It was part of the Second Punic War, and Cannae is actually in southeast Italy. In the Battle of Canaan, the Carthaginians under Hannibal uh, surrounded and destroyed a much larger Roman force. He did that by stretching his forces on either side and had a, a double envelopment, hitting the sides of the both sides of the uh, the Roman force. This is down as one of the great tactical feats in military history, and it's a manoeuvre known as a double cannon. Now, a good visualisation of this, and it's been mentioned to me more than once by branch members of the WFA when I've been explaining uh, Schlieffen's strategy, um, is that uh, if you remember in the film Zulu, there's a Boer uh, sort of advisor who tells Stanley Baker and Michael Caine 
what Zulu tactics are. And the visualization he uses is a cow's horns. And that's actually what um, a double can I looked like. Uh, now, that was not what Schlieffen wanted. Schlieffen did what was known as a single can I, because his was just a right wing envelopment um, coming around the one side, not the both sides. And Moltke began with, and this is where we come back to 1914, Moltke began with that Schlieffen single can I shape. But even at the beginning, you can see he's hankering that actually it will probably be a double can. Uh, one thing uh, that people are probably unaware of is that actually before he was appointed, Moltke was a considerable critic of Schlieffen's plans. And Moltke, you can see, although he's notionally stuck to Schlieffen, you can see all the time he's slightly hankering to make it into a double can I. And that's what we see him try to do over the next few days of the campaign, between the 31st of August and the 5th of September. Unfortunately for Moltke, at least, the best plans were kiboshed by Kluck's willful disregard of his orders and Joffre's counterattack on the Marne. So turning back to the French, Joffre, on the 4th of September, decided to turn and face his pursuers and set out and set the 6th of September as the start date for his plan. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I'm always amazed about the short time frame. When you think how long it took offensives to prepare later on in the war, weeks, months of putting it up and getting everything organised, Joffre was knocking out an offensive in three days. Um, it really, it was a different kind of war. Um, Joffre had now made all his key strategic decisions. Since Shawa, the French retreat had, had been orderly, but it had been a retreat nonetheless. He'd repositioned his forces. Um, and having finally lost patience with Longrezac, he'd replaced him with a chap called Franchet Desperi, who'd taken over as commander of the Fifth Army. And this leads us to our next decision, the sixth decision, um, which is when Joffre decides to turn his strategy into an actual counterattack. His initial plan had been to counterattack further north, but the Germans had rumbled through. But by the time the Germans had reached the Marne, he was ready. The Marne as a river sort of wends its way sort of east or sort of east, southeast of Paris. But equally, not only was he ready, Kluck, by extending his front over 50 miles, had given this inviting target uh, uh, as it sat right in front of his new Sixth Army and also the BEF. They were directly facing it. Now, I believe there's some dispute on the French side about which commander actually takes credit for identifying the opportunity presented by Kluck's change of course. Can you tell us about that dispute? Um, yes, indeed. Uh, was it Joffre himself or was it a chap called Joseph Galliani? He was the commander of the garrison in Paris. And uh, because he was, you know, by now in his 70s, he'd been overlooked for the uh, job of commander-in-chief when, when Joffre got the job. But he was now commander of the garrison. Uh, his reconnaissance identified that the German First Army had turned inward. And from the beginning of the month, 1st September, he's havering Joffre to mount a counteroffensive. Joffre listens to what Gallien is to say, but doesn't act upon it. Um, the thing is, Joffre's plan always was to attack the outside flank of the Germans. It was 
always just a question of timing. Joffre didn't need to be told by Galliani that he should attack that flank. It was always his plan. So the question of whether it's Galliani or whether it's Joffre is kind of academic. It was always in Joffre's plans. And on the 4th of September, Joffre felt his armies were lined up on the, on the Marne and he was ready to rock and roll for the 6th of September. I don't know about this, Ross, but I'm feeling of where are the British in all this? And, you know, wh- when I thought the British were fighting decisive victories uh, during this period, what were they doing? And, and how was Joffre involving them in his counterattack? Well, Joffre had one tiny, mini problem, and it was what to do with the British. Um, the British had um, not exactly excelled themselves at GHQ leadership level during the campaign. Sure, uh, Smith Dorian and Haig managed those retreats in extremely trying circumstances. But at a GHQ level, apart from Robertson's heroics with supply, their retreat from Mons was not well managed at all. Um, A small force was forced to divide into two by the forest of Mormon, risking uh, defeat. Uh, Defeat in detail was risked by the Second Corps at Lakato. Relations with the French Fifth Army had broken down. Uh, relations with the uh, French GHQ were a little better. By the 30th of September, Sir John French actually had a crisis of of confidence and uh, telegraphed to London that he was going to take the British army out of the front entirely and take it back to La Rochelle on the French coast for refit and uh, sorting out. This forced Kitchener to leap on the next ship, get across the Channel, get to a hotel in Paris, and in his uniform, much to uh, French's annoyance, um, order him to stay online. The British um, strategy, from as far as Kitchener was concerned, was always clear-cut. They had to stay next to the French. Um, the performance at GHQ amongst the rest of the officers wasn't that much better. Um, French was barely in control of operations. He spent a huge amount of time visiting the troops and geeing them up, but not taking operational decisions. This was largely left to Archibald Murray, his chief of staff, but his health had collapsed, uh, and Henry Wilson, his sub-chief of staff, who, although exhibiting enormous calm, was much too in awe of the French. And the result was that the BF's retreat became disconnected from that of the French. They headed south, the French headed more southeast. So by the time of the Battle of the Marne, they were actually a day's retreat further south than uh, the French were. So Joffre had a big problem. Um, the BF was positioned between and back from the French, with the French fifth and sixth armies on either side. Joffre needed them to advance in line with those armies, but had no direct control over the BF. Uh, the BF, what's more, was giving off mixed messages about whether it would or would not participate in Joffre's offence. Henry Wilson was French's main confidant. Um, he met the new commander of the French Fifth Army, Franchet Despoy, and intimated to Franchet that the British would be on board, but it just needed sign-off by Sir John French. The French thereafter assumed that Wilson's influence would ensure that the British would take part in the counteroffensive. But they then got a message uh, that Murray, the official chief of staff, 
was already organising a further day's retreat on the very day they needed the BEF to attack. This leads us to the seventh decision taken, and it's a Joffre and French combined decision. Joffre jumps into his car and is motored 200 kilometres to BEF's HQ at saint Malon. Quietly and emotionally, he appeals his case to French on the basis of a nation's honour as much as strategy. He didn't argue the whole case for uh, why he should be attacking at that particular point or why he shouldn't. It was all about would the British have the sense of honour to take part in this joint escapade against the Germans. Now, Sir John Finch was noted as a highly emotional man and allegedly with tears in his eyes, according to Edward Spears anyway, he said that they would be on board the next day. You have to admire Joffre's nerve. It was 24 hours before the off. Unmuting problems. So we reached the 5th of September and the Battle of the Marne starts late during that day. What kicked it all off? Um, well, it was planned for the 6th, but it started a little bit earlier than that. Uh, the French counterattack basically started early and by accident. Um, Manouri's 6th Army outside Paris was advancing in a sort of north-easterly direction, bumped into uh, Cluck's rear guard around the River Orc, which is a, a tributary of the River Marne. Um, this triggered, on Joffre's part, a signal for a general attack. Um, and at that point, a battle breaks out, and it's about 140 miles from one side to the other. When you consider the battles later in the war, you know, Somme was over 12 miles or something like that. Passchendaele was probably over less. Um, you know, the great German assault in um 1918, I don't know the exact distance, but I guess that's over sort of 30 miles or something like that. Um, this one's 140 miles from side to side. Um, um, when it broke out initially, the Germans were in a state of jubilation. Um, they thought finally their retreating enemy had been forced by their uh, uh, offensive to turn and face them. They didn't realise, they didn't appreciate that actually it was a deliberate planned counterattack. They thought it was an act of a desperate man. That optimism, and there was wild cheering in OHL when they found out that's what the French were doing, that jubilation changed over the next three days. Um, it changed to an, a mood of despair because all along that huge front, the French stopped the Germans in their tracks and in some cases were able to drive them back. Germany now had some big problems in its very at the very front of its advance. It no longer had a balance of um, the balance of force in its favour in terms of the numbers of soldiers on either side. Um, a reasonable estimate, and it is estimate, shows that uh, there was a clear cut advantage now to uh, the French, particularly on the French left, the German right. Uh, in terms of, of, the, of the Entente forces. The German Second Army had fought in Liège, Cholois, uh, Guise, and now the Marne. They'd marched all the way. They had colossal wastage. Uh, at one point during the, the Battle of the Marne, Hausen breaks through Foch's front on the 6th September, but Foch is able to close the gap. Um, basically, Hausen hadn't the reserves to push through the opportunity he'd created. Hausen's front itself is 40 miles wide and is little more than a cordon. 
So at the Battle of the Marne, as you would expect, all the initial problems faced by the Germans are on the right wing and the usual suspects, Cluck and von Burlow. Let's start with Cluck. Well, Cluck was in trouble almost straight away. Uh, he'd extended his front so far, he was now being sliced into the sides by particularly uh, by the British or under threat from that at least. And this new uh, French army out on his right uh, he'd not sent out proper reconnaissance and he had absolutely no idea that there was a new French army there. So now we come to our next key decision, the eighth key decision, and this is made by Kluck. Realising the threat uh, posed, he rapidly backpedals. He hastily recalls those two corps, the third and the ninth, that he'd sent on as an, an advance guard. Uh, I, you do feel for those poor soldiers in the third and the ninth, they marched all the way to Villas Cossarets and all the way back again. Um, there was a knock-on effect to that, because by doing so, he re-exposed the gap that he closed, this gap between the first and second armies. This was bang opposite the British, who were slowly threatening it. And what about our friend von Burlow? Ah, oh, well, Burlow was in trouble as well. Uh, he was across the Marne, so he was making progress. But of all the armies, he was... Uh, the weakest compared to his um, starting position because he'd fought so many battles. And there was no doubt the French army was completely re-energised by the appointment of Franchet d'Esprit, which was attacking Boulard's left flank. Um, so he got a threat to his left flank, but because of the gap, his right flank was hanging in the air. In truth, though, there were gaps all over the German line. Uh, be between various armies. But Bulov was in a particularly exposed position um, with somebody slicing into his left and nothing at all on his right. So after three days of intense fighting, Moltke now must be very concerned about the state of his, state of his armies on the right wing of their attack. What does he do? Well, yes, by the 8th um, of September, the lines had sort of begun to stabilise. But yes, Moltke was a deeply worried man. Um, the offensive had lost all momentum uh, and he feared, in fact, in his heart of hearts, he knew that he would be forced to retreat. Uh, the position of his extended front was pretty weak. There was this gap between the first and second army that could be exploited. The first army was heading in a completely different direction because it was now driving back towards Paris, whereas the rest of the army was heading southeast. He needed Crook to adhere to his instructions as of 31st August and he needed to pull alongside Bulo. This would then close the gap and have the right wing all pulling in the same direction. However, there was no doubt that at this stage, Moltke was a very worried man about the, uh, the position of his armies. But actually doing something about it was not that straightforward, was it? No, I mean, communications between OHL and the commanders had bedeviled the Germans throughout. They had major communication problems. And if you're looking for an, uh, a real point of difference, uh, again, which is part of it was that, uh, that sort of focused on the leadership thing was that actually it was very difficult for OHL uh, to command, particularly the armies on the far right. Um, they tried to use radio. Uh, the trouble with that was that it was not secure and it was not reliable. There was often a time lag between a message being sent and it reaching uh, its intended destination. Um, they were also surprisingly reluctant to use the French telephone network, uh, network as they occupied territory. The British didn't hesitate to do that. 
the usual method uh, at key times was to send an emissary from uh, OHL who would shuttle backwards and forward. Uh, one was uh, sent out to Ruprecht uh, out, uh, in, out in Lorraine right at the start where, uh, when they were making up their mind whether to uh, continue with the offensive out there. Such an emissary was, was a senior man. You know, it, he, in rank, they would be junior to the officers in the field, but they would be speaking with uh, his, his master's voice, basically. They may be a lieutenant colonel or a colonel, but they were speaking as though they were the, uh, the commander-in-chief. Um, there's a good example of this principle in military affairs generally in the charge of the light brigade. I mean, Captain Nolan raced down the cliffs from... Uh, Lord Raglan, uh, and gave the message to Lord Cardigan. And as far as Lord Cardigan was concerned, whatever Nolan said was what Raglan said. And we all know how that all ended up. And so there was this established principle that a, a colonel or a lieutenant colonel um, had essentially the command uh, authority, uh, in theory at least, of uh, the commander-in-chief. So this leads us to the mission of Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hedge. I don't know whether I pronounced uh, that correctly using my... Yes, yes, that is the correct... Say it again. Yes, you were right. That is the right pronunciation. So say it again. This leads us to the mission of Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hedge. Yes, it does. This is our ninth important decision, and it's really two, because Hedge... has key discussions with Bulo and with Cluck. Uh, I've lumped them together because they were the same process and Hench is the common factor. Um, now, they were both facilitated, and I, I'll pick that with care by Hench. Um, they weren't, it would appear, we don't know for certain, actually ordered by him. Hench uh, was a Saxon by birth. He wasn't a Prussian. He was the head of intelligence at OHL. He was a senior man. One of the diet, one of Moltke's direct reports. He was sent out by Moltke on the eighth of September in the early afternoon. Uh, Moltke was already eyeing up a full-on retreat, but just needed to know what on earth was going on out on his right wing, and so sent Hench um, to find out uh, what was going on. Hench himself went with a considerable sense of uh, foreboding. Um, he knew it was almost certain that he'd have to all sort of get the first army to retreat. Uh, He knew that as a result, that would be controversial and that he would be seen as the fall guy. The exact brief he had from Molka is not known. Ostensibly, uh, a meeting that took place on the morning of the 8th agreed that he should coordinate an organised retreat of the first army to align itself with the rest of the army. But uh, von Mock's biographer believes there was a second meeting, almost like a corridor conversation, um, between Molka at and Hench, in which Molka sort of beefed up his instructions and said, you must ensure this happens. Um, but her evidence is uh, circumstantial for that. The implication, though, of all this is that he, uh, whether he had a specific instruction to order the retreat is not wholly certain. Hench, uh, he wasn't required to do this, but he chose to pay cursory visits to every HQ of each army. Um, um, and they were quite cursory. And rightly or wrongly, all the commanders reported to him that they were satisfied with their progress. Uh, even Housen, who was fully stretched, 
That changed when he uh, reached Bulov's uh, command of the Second Army in the early evening, evening of the 8th. So tell, tell us what happened there. Well, he, what he found was an army and an army leadership that was exhausted and severely reduced in capacity. And they were also now outnumbered. It was their 18th day of heavy fighting out of the 30-odd days of campaign. Um, he was under threat from Franchet Despre on his left flank and his right flank was hanging in the air, as I've said. It was agreed that should the French get over the Marne, then Second Army was entitled to withdraw and consolidate. Hench went to bed and set off the next morning uh, at about seven o'clock in the morning. But at nine o'clock, while he was on the road, uh, Second Army was informed uh, that Franchet Despre had got troops across the Marne and Bulov made another instant and hasty decision at that point, and at 9.02 on the 9th of September, ordered the first German step backwards. So at this point, it seems that the whole fate of the German offensive was now on a knife edge. Yes, I mean, Bulov's snap decision was taken while Hench was in transit uh, to First Army HQ. Um, this trip took Hench five hours and a dogleg via the Reeves. Uh, there was he's plenty of evidence of the chaos on the roads behind the fighting front. So what actually happens when Hench reaches First Army HQ? Now, oh, here's an interesting thing. Hench knew that his toughest task would be persuading uh, First Army to retreat alongside Second Army. But he actually didn't ever meet Kluck. In fact, there is a, a sort of unsubstantiated rumour that he was no more than 400 yards away from the operational HQ. Uh, but chose to diplomatically avoid the meeting because he didn't want to be associated to what he thought was an inevitable decision to retreat. Instead, Hench met uh, the chief of staff, a very powerful figure, Hermann von Kuhl. Um, Kuhl said to Hench, well, First Army is making fantastic progress. We've overcome the initial assault from the French, and now they were being driven back towards Paris. All of that was actually true. But as far as Hench was concerned, and then by default, the Molka, this only made matters worse because it would only widen the gap. They were heading southwest, back into Paris. Boulot was going in sort of southeast, southeast kind of direction. That would that gap was now, it's, I mean, it's difficult to measure because the troops are so strung out, but it's about 30 miles um, at one point, that gap. So what persuaded von Kuhl to agree to retreat? Well, it, it's rather like the decision of French to go along with um, Joffre, actually. Uh, Hench mapped out the strategic situation and said that's why they should retreat. You know, you would think logically um, Kuhl would see that, uh, would agree to the common sense of it and retreat. Actually, Kuhl was not persuaded by that. In the end, Hench had to play an emotional card, not a, a logical card, and he pleaded to essentially comradely loyalty that Bulov was in extreme trouble. He needed the first army to help them. And unless they did that, you know, Bulov could be could jeopardize the whole offensive. And it was that which won the argument. And it took about three hours for um, Hench to win the day. But it was agreed in the end that first army would um, draw alongside a second army. Although in an act of sort of petulance, they withdrew in such a way as to not make it look like a retreat um, uh, it, because they that was too humiliating. But actually, they didn't, without going into the detail, they didn't uh, withdraw in the, the logical way um, 
because that would have looked too much like full-on retreating. Uh, so, but even so, by the ninth morning of the ninth, it was sorry, the afternoon of the ninth, the the it was agreed that uh, the first army would pull alongside uh, the uh, second. And by now, as far as Moltke's concerned, he's got a full-on double canai. Uh, he's envisaging a victory in the centre if he's going to get one, with the two sides pulling in uh, on the centre. So we reach our tenth and final decision, and it's commemorated by a small stone in the village of Sepi, southeast of Reims. It is. It was there at the Third Army HQ that Moltke took the now inevitable decision to call off the advance. And this final decision is brought about not by the problems on the right wing, as you might expect, but in the centre. Tell us about that. Yes, well, Hench hopped in his car, returned to OHL in, in Luxembourg. And contrary to what you might think, Hench, who is viewed by history as quite a, a pessimistic character, was actually in quite a positive frame of mind. Um, if First Army pulled alongside Second Army, the advance, in his view, could recommend recommends. And what he said to Molka was uh, that he himself, Molka, should visit the front and see how the fighting was going. It, he thought it would be very valuable. Uh, Molka did not share Hench's optimism, but even so agreed to go. He set up on the 11th in his motor and, like Hench before him, visit each of the commanders beginning on the German left. And, like Hench before him, found that each commander was fairly optimistic about progress. They realised they were in a big battle, but they thought they were winning what was, a by now, a classic battle of engagement. It was no longer um, uh, any kind of envelopment. But when he reached Third Army, uh, they intercepted a radio message from Bulo's HQ back to OHL. This reported that Foch's Ninth Army had broken through Hausen's flank in an area known as the Marshes of Saint-Gon. Now, this particular friend had kind of wavered back and forward for over the previous three days, but now Foch had broken through in the centre. And this leads us to decision 10. The German position was now untenable. Uh, they, he got a huge gap in his lines. He needed to pull back and reconsolidate them. So at that point, he ordered a general retreat across the board, got into his car, and motored back, a broken man, and a day or two off being fired by the Kaiser. So what was the immediate uh, impact of these decisions? And how did the Germans view the whole, this whole decision-making process in, in, the, in the annals of history? How did they sort of describe it, or how did they describe what happened well, after the war? Well, let's be, yeah, let's, let's, a little bit of the immediate argument, uh, which does tell us something. Um, Moltke motored back and stopped at Reims for a coffee. And it just so happened that coming in the opposite direction was a chap with General von Einem. Von Einem had been uh, Minister for War uh, before, the, before the war, so knew all about the strategy. Um, he was now on his way to be a, a replacement divisional commander in Bulos army. Um, von Moltke uh, and Einem sat down and had a coffee. Um, Einem said to Moltke, you know, where have you been? You should have been out here more often. Why has it taken so long for you to uh, come to the front? And Malka's response to that was, well, I couldn't come to the front. I, I had to stay with the Kaiser at all times. Uh, the Kaiser was the supreme warlord, after all. Einem then responded rather bluntly, 
your great uncle, your uncle would not have said that. Your uncle would have dragged the Kaiser around with him. Um, and I think it was a final nail in Malka's coffin, really, that he was always being compared unfavourably with his uncle. And right at the very end, he was still being compared unfavourably. Now, after the war, um, clearly there was a lot of explaining to be done. And um, why had 44 years of military planning gone belly up? Uh, four guys had to be found for those who argued that Schlieffen had had a winning recipe. That's what they called it, Schlieffen's a winning recipe, that had only been ruined by poor execution. By 1921, Hench, Bulo, and Moltke were all conveniently dead and so unable to defend themselves. And so they were the people held primarily responsible for the failure. In particular, they historic, the, the history of, of the war was written so that the blame was placed on Moltke's changes before the, uh, the outbreak of war and then his bad management during them. Ashley's changes from before the war made complete sense, although his management, uh, yes, definitely was poor. Um, as regards Hench, the lack of clarity in Moltke's brief was clearly a reason why it was quite easy to blame him. The question was, had he exceeded his brief? Well, probably not. Cluck, uh, on the other hand, who has probably got more reason for being the major culprit for the German strategic problems, gets off scot-free after the war. Uh, and that might be because the man writing the history was none other than Hermann von Kuhl, who was Kluck's chief of staff, and therefore all those odd decisions that Kluck take, took were going to be pointed at him. And so he definitely wanted the blame pointed elsewhere. So instead, the buck was passed to these three dead men. And that myth largely wrote the history of the Schlieffen plan and still does colour the history of the Schlieffen plan ever since. You know, it is a common telling of the Schlieffen plan. Schlieffen had a plan, Moltke messed around with it, and then Moltke badly managed it, and the war was lost. Um, actually, it was a much more different, a much more convoluted story, but that's the subject of another lecture. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>